0: So newborn screening research to me means improving that newborn screening system to benefit families. And that means finding ways to better screen and diagnose infants, better uh, treatments and possibly cures for infants. But it really is about that infant and families.
1: You're listening to the voice of Dr. Michelle lloyd who who's a pediatrician and geneticist and has held academic appointments and has worked in pediatric clinics at the local and international levels. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and an emeritus member of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. Over a 40-year commitment to infants, children, and mothers, she has made numerous contributions internationally and nationally to programs that have improved and expanded the quality, services, and the scope of newborn screening and the care for children identified through newborn screening. Recognition for her work in maternal and child health, genetic services, and newborn screening includes awards from HSS, the Association of Public Health Laboratory, the March of Dimes, the Genetic Alliance, and the Cyclic Cell Disease Association of America. In this episode, you will hear from Dr. Peirier talk about the diagnosis process and the current interventions for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, also known as DMD. We will learn how parent lay advocacy group play an important role in newborn screening and newborn screening research. Whether you're a parent, health professional, researcher, or an advocate, there are many ways to get involved with newborn screening research. So listen on. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research, told by health professionals, researchers, parents and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki-Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn
2: Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the mbs Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients,
1: and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org.
2: So, Dr. Currier, can you tell us what Duchenne muscular dystrophy, also known as DMD, is?
0: Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a genetic disorder. It's characterized by the progressive loss of muscle. Duchenne is caused by changes or mutations in, in the, a specific gene that codes for dystrophin. And dystrophin is a protein that's found in every muscle cell. It's one of a group of proteins that work together to strengthen muscle fibers and protect them from injury as muscles contract and relax. But without that protein, muscles are not able to function or repair themselves properly. And because it's in every muscle cell and therefore in many organ systems, Duchenne is a multi-system condition affecting many parts of the body, including the skeletal muscles, the heart muscles and the lung muscles. The dystrophin gene is found on the X chromosome. It primarily affects males, but females can be carriers and some of those carriers can, female carriers can manifest varying ranges of symptoms with Duchenne and are called called manifesting carriers.
2: Thank you. So we're here today representing the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network and thinking about newborn screening. Duchenne isn't currently part of newborn screening in the United States, so can you tell us how babies are diagnosed for Duchenne now, and what are the current interventions for babies that are diagnosed?
0: Well, it's an exciting time uh, because we're piloting uh, Duchenne newborn screening in New York State, so we're hoping for nationwide newborn screening eventually. But right now, you're right, we don't have newborn screening. And, but every family uh, comes with a different story of how they've been diagnosed. Many receive a diagnosis months or years after doctor's visits. Every child develops at his own pace. So a pediatrician may not take immediate action when your child is slow to sit, stand, or walk. However, over time, the delay is seen in children with Duchenne become more worrisome more apparent, although most parents uh, report uh, that they begin noticing things when the child is um, beginning to walk around 15 months to two years of age. But it takes a while sometimes for a pediatrician or a family physician to act on a parent's report. So the diagnostic process therefore involves a series of steps to confirm what's going on. And and you begin with uh, uh, the signs and symptoms of Duchenne and uh, and it's delayed uh, uh, reaching of milestones like walking or climbing or running. And then the next step would be to actually check for a possibility of Duchenne and a pediatrician might or should be drawing uh, blood levels at that point to look for uh, levels of creatinine kinase. And creatinine kinase typically leaks out of damaged muscle cells. So remember I said that uh, because of the missing uh, or damaged dystrophin, that protein Muscle cells uh, become injured and aren't able to repair themselves. So high levels of creatinine kinase may suggest a muscle problem, but that doesn't confirm Duchenne. You actually need at that point a genetic test. And at this point, you're probably referred to a subspecialist, either a neurologist or geneticist or both. And uh, that subspecialist will analyze the individual's DNA to see if there's a mutation in the dystrophin gene. And if there is a mutation, they can tell you what kind the mutation is and what type of Duchenne or what type of muscular dystrophy, actually, that the child uh, has. And if you still don't have uh, definitive results after genetic testing, they may do a muscle biopsy and uh, to look at what's going on, but that uh, it is seldom used anymore. That used to be the first line of how you would make a diagnosis, but because we have genetic testing, we, uh, uh, few uh, there's few calls for that at this point. Treatments, there are no treatments for uh, or no cures for Duchenne. There, uh, depending on the genetic abnormalities, there are uh, some treatments for specific sets of, of uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Most of the treatments and cures uh, for Duchenne are are, are currently being. Uh, evaluated by uh, within clinical trials or by, and by FDA. And the approaches for drug development treatments are taking two approaches. One is restoring or replacing the dystrophin, and that would be a um, genetic uh, treatment, genetic-based treatment. They're actually uh, targeting the underlying cause of the mutations in the individual that's causing uh, muscular dystrophy or, or Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And then sometimes, um, uh, along with that, we're treating uh, Duchenne symptoms that arise from the absence of uh, dystrophin. And this would be reducing the inflammation uh, that you see with fibrosis. And uh, and that's generally done with uh, corticosteroids. Those are approved by FDA. And there are some treatments for specific uh, types of mutations that are approved by FDA. But... uh, no one treatment at this point can cure all forms of muscular dystrophy.
2: Thank you, Dr. Perier. I think in listening to your answer, we're reminded that currently babies aren't diagnosed with Duchenne. It's when they're a little bit older. Are there any cases currently where babies are diagnosed with Duchenne? Does that happen in families? Are there sometimes more than one child
0: in a family? Yes, that's, uh, if you have families with Duchenne, then they know to actually, if one child has Duchenne, or if the mother happens to be symptomatic and knows she's a carrier, then uh, the uh, family physicians will actually then look for the disease in in the the children, and this could be done prenatally, but uh, is generally done postnatally with a a test after the baby is born. So that's another way of picking up the disease.
2: So Dr. Pereer, you have an MD and a PhD, and you have been trained as a pediatrician and a geneticist. Can you tell the audience a little bit about how you got involved in newborn screening research?
0: I've always been interested primarily in primary care. Uh, genetics w- was secondary, but just because I was interested in primary care doesn't mean that my brain still doesn't uh, focus on research. For instance, when I was in the National Service Corps, I noticed a lot of nutritional abnormalities in my patient population when we lived when I was stationed in Micronesia, and I did a big countrywide research project uh, with Johns Hopkins to determine the level of vitamin A deficiency in that area. And um, it was discovered there was a pandemic there, and, <clears throat> and we got WHO to address the, that issue. When I was uh, worked with homeless children, when I was at Albert Einstein at Montefiore, I looked at uh, lead poisoning. I was worried with many of the homeless shelters being in um, uh, old buildings. Uh, I was very worried about uh, the level of uh, lead in uh, my patient population there. So... I investigated that with uh, physicians at uh, the Lead Center um, at Montefiore. When I became, uh, when I was in charge of the genetic services program at HRSA, um, although I couldn't directly do research at this point, uh, you always look for, in the programs you're running, uh, the gaps in knowledge and, and and the gaps in science. Uh, and and figuring out ways to address them. And so I I developed many programs that were uh, more qualitative research uh, or programs that would help strengthen our knowledge base about uh, specific conditions uh, that we're screening for in newborn screening. So it wasn't until I uh, uh, came to work uh, with uh, the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network that I was more directly involved in research.
2: Thank you. Um, What role do parent lay advocacy groups play in newborn screening and in newborn screening research?
0: They play a very important role, and it's often overlooked, but uh, one of the things that we need to understand, especially with rare diseases of, are we making a difference when we're uh, screening for these disorders, either as a child or as a newborn? And you need to, <clears throat> is there a benefit? Uh, is there <clears throat> for, from early identification? And w- what is the clinical spectrum of the disease? Our understanding of uh, diseases is often just by those people who come into our clinic. And when you begin to look at uh, patient populations or individuals uh, uh, on a population basis, you begin to understand a, a wider spectrum of a disorder. And this is why it's important to participate in research, no matter if you have uh a a disorder or disease that's recognized or not, understanding um, how that disease uh, expresses itself within families, within uh, both uh, immediate and extended families is important because not everyone who has specific mutations will necessarily express uh, a disease. And uh, so it's important to have everybody participating but um, so, ways that parents can participate in, uh, are through the parent groups. And these include Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, Muscular Dystrophy Association, Muscular Dystrophy Family Foundation, Duchenne Connect, Care Duchenne. Each of these uh, family groups has a, a registry that you can participate in. And this is an essential tool. This registry is an essential tool for research. And uh, many of these uh, parent groups often fund research themselves. So uh, as a parent, you can help drive the direction and and, uh, point to the priorities needed in research. And they can inform researchers about what's important to them, uh, the questions to ask about quality of life measures when you're evaluating treatments. And they can also help uh, recruit participants for clinical studies. So parents are are really essential, and they're essential partners for any researcher.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with parents and parent groups and uh, the role that they've played in advocating for legislation that has actually led to funding, whether it's for newborn screening or newborn screening research? They actually, parents have helped
0: drive, uh, along with technology, have helped drive from the very beginning, uh, the establishment of newborn screening programs, and then also the expansion of newborn screening programs. They have advocated uh, every step of the way over the last 60 years for s- specific diseases uh, and for uh, specific treatments. And for uh, newborn screening legislation, and usually part of that legislation is funding both services and research. So I would wrap them all together. Um, that being said, I think it's important to, along with expecting parents uh, and our families to be advocates, it's also important to have programs that help educate the the parent population and and also uh, the population in general about genetics, about newborn screening and increasing the health literacy. So uh, parents uh, and families can uh, participate as uh, equal partners. And I think it's important to view parents or the public as potential equal partners in research because they can both support and and inform the whole process.
2: Wow, that's amazing, the role that parents have played really since the beginnings of newborn screening in the 1960s. Um, In addition to parents, how do you think health professionals and researchers who may not already be in the newborn screening sort of arena could get involved in newborn screening research for Duchenne? So
0: um, for that, I'd like to point to the uh, medical professionals to the newborn screening translational research network. You, um, It was created under the vision that a shared research infrastructure would allow investigators to work in the newborn screening arena at lower total costs than funding, uh, functions for individual grantees. So there's that part of the NBSTRN. But also, um, it also there's other parts that of uh, that website. So please go to the NBSTRN website where you can learn about newborn screening. You can learn about how you can participate. Um, you can learn about, uh, how to talk to parents, uh, about newborn screening, how to talk to parents about participating in research and, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics also, uh, and I assume the American Academy of family physicians, uh, um, probably also offers, um, opportunities for research, uh, and and practice-based research. But the newborn screening uh, translational research network uh, it, it provides uh, specific uh, opportunities for accessing biologic sp- specimens uh, that can help you understand uh, the epidemiology of a disease. And what you need to uh, go forward, uh, how much, a, how big a sample size you would need to participate in research, and and then it helps you uh, explore some of the ethical, legal, and social issues around um, uh, specific access uh, aspects of research and participating in research.
2: Dr. Perrier, thank you for the shout out for MDSTRN. In fact, you've been a longtime member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, and you've played a variety of roles over the years. Can you talk a little bit more about the different hats that you've worn and how you think that could encourage our audience to get involved in newborn screening research?
0: Newborn screening programs and and that newborn screening system were built uh, to serve families and specifically to serve that newborn, and I think that's one of the parts that I value. Um, that spirit that I value about MBSTRN—it's really been established for research, but it's also been established to to serve that newborn and to serve families, and it's structured. Um, to find better ways to screen, for example, to find uh, better ways to diagnose, to develop better treatments and to develop better programs in general. So I think if you focus on what's important about newborn screening, uh, but it's, it's about um, accomplishing something for that newborn and for that family.
2: You've been involved in a lot of the innovation in newborn screening. Do you have any guidance for our community on how on what that journey has been like or thoughts about what that journey has been like?
0: I think one of the most important things that I've learned from the very beginning is is one, ask questions and and make sure that you have every possible stakeholder uh, that might be interested in newborn screening or the particular subject matter that you're interested in, have them there at the table, have them there as equal partners and making sure that you listen to what they have to say. And this means involving not only uh, researchers, but also families, also primary care providers, statisticians, bench scientists so that they can bring uh, a really full picture to uh, the question at hand. And we did this with newborn screening very early on to look at what was going on with uh, newborn screening and and ways to change it, ways to improve it. But it was really important uh, to have both industry, families, scientists, agency heads, uh, federal federal government agency heads, uh, policymakers, ethicists, and and if I said parents, uh, have everybody there to address the issues at hand, and and that's really how uh, the newborn screening translational research network was built with that kind of input, and also the programs, the g- genetics programs that I was involved in. They're richer that way when you have um, a lot of hands in the pot and uh, and, and it's a lot more productive because you add that, out of that interaction, you create partnerships that go a lot farther than just uh, doing things as uh, in a very narrow focus of just having just scientists involved or just uh, families involved. It's just not as rich. If you don't have everybody who uh, can contribute from there from the very beginning.
2: Thank you. Um, so we end each podcast with sort of a signature question. And so we would love to hear from you. So Dr. Perier, what does newborn screening research mean to you?
0: So newborn screening research to me means improving that newborn screening system to benefit families. And that means finding ways to better screen and diagnose infants, better uh, treatments and possibly cures for infants. But it really is about that infant and families.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved.
1: Stay informed.
2: Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together, let's let's increase increase the the impact impact of of newborn screening research
1: by listening to your stories. stories.